You're listening to Project Halo, helping the homeless with awareness and learning while observing the issues and solutions. I'll be talking to different professionals and organizations across Southern California that are connected to the homeless communities here to get an inside look on what's really happening. I'm your host, Crystal Zoller. I'm talking with Lily Sofiani, who is an assistant deputy of homelessness policy in Los Angeles County. She graduated from UCLA with a degree in public policy and homelessness policy in L.A. County. So, Lily, hi. Hi there. (laughs) Could you tell me more about your time in college and how you created the specialty of homelessness policy? Sure thing. So graduate school, I majored in public policy. So at first, my focus was poverty policy, and I wasn't sure if I was going to do domestic or international poverty policy, but then I kind of honed in and decided that I wanted to work domestically on poverty policy and specifically on homelessness policy. But I really honed in and decided to focus on homelessness policy in Los Angeles County specifically. And at the time, this was before the passing of Measure H in 2017. This was back in 2016. So there really wasn't a focus at UCLA on or in in most schools throughout on homelessness policy. This wasn't really talked about as much as it is now. It wasn't highlighted or the focus of attention. But in 2017, we passed Measure H, which is our homeless sales tax, and a ton of jobs opened up in the homelessness field. And obviously, it's more visible. So more people are talking about it. And so I sort of just went up to the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors and asked them if I could do a my thesis on homelessness in LA County and and work for them for free and basically like made myself an intern and gave myself a thesis project to work on. So that kind of opened up the door for me to get into the elected officials office as a homelessness policy deputy. But I started at the city of Los Angeles with Mayor Eric Garcetti, where I was the homeless policy analyst, then went on to the state to work for then Senator Holly Mitchell as her housing and homelessness field rep. And then I transitioned to the county where I am now, um, where we have the biggest problem. Yeah. Yeah. So what inspired you to work so closely with the homeless population of L.A. County? You know, I've always kind of been that girl that just like since I was a child would like randomly walk up to unhoused people and start talking to them and giving them all my money. And that's just sort of something that has been in my personality since I was little. Never did I think I would end up having a career in working with the homeless population that never crossed my mind. I just thought it was something that I could do to help someday, you know, if I was wealthy enough to do something about a problem. But I I kind of ended up in this field, sort of it was like meant to be. But, you know, I've dedicated my life and my career to solving homelessness. And Los Angeles is the county. It's the capital of homelessness in the United States of America. Actually, it's the capital of homelessness in the world. No other county or jurisdiction in the world has the amount of unhoused population that we do. So I really don't think there's a better place for me to be to work on this issue. If someone is interested in working with the homeless community as a career path, what would you recommend to them? What steps should they take? I would recommend first to start out doing some kind of social work. And I know that that's not for everyone. Social work is very difficult. You're basically having to be a therapist, right? You are really talking through these issues, really difficult trauma with people. You're handholding, you're walking them through programs, housing, everything step by step. You are the caseworker. But I would recommend that someone who's interested in this work really do that for at least one or two years to really gain a a very in-depth understanding of what someone goes through when they become unhoused what leads them 
them, the different stories, the different trauma that leads them to the street, and what it really takes to resolve homelessness and get housed and stay housed. So I think someone who's done that for at least a few years has a very, very deep knowledge and understanding. And after that, I would recommend maybe spending a year or two at LASA, which is our Los Angeles Homeless Authority, because LASA is the entity that works between the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles. So they're a third party, but they take direction from both the city and the county. So if you worked for LASA, you have a very good understanding between the relationship of nonprofits, the city, the county, the state, the federal government, that relationship becomes like crystal clear for you. And, and you've sort of been in the deep trenches of it and understand what works and what doesn't in all those relationships. I think once you've had experience with LASA and a social worker, you are pretty much set and a diamond in the rough to work for, you know, higher office and politics to make decisions on what's needed. Thank yeah. you. That's really great advice for someone wanting mm-hmm. to help. And I think it shows you don't have to be the wealthiest person. You just have to know where to start and you can start making changes and helping. So as far as the issues that do face our homeless community here in Los Angeles, what do you think are the biggest factors? So that's a really big question. You know, I mean, we can go back to historically what's led them to this point, or I can just answer very briefly, like surface level, it is the lack of housing and affordable housing, right? Because most, I would say all unhoused people in LA have some type of either a housing voucher in their hand, they have general relief, they receive welfare, food stamps, all of that. So they do have a basic general income they receive from either social security or from welfare. But that income that you to be enough to have a single or one bedroom apartment back in the 90s, 80s, that is no longer enough. That's like $800 a month, including food and everything. And, you know, rent is about $1,600 a month for a one bedroom. So they're they're halfway, they're, they're short another $800 just to rent an apartment. So the lack of a safe space, lack of units is the main barrier to them getting housed, you know, because a lot of what we offer today for our unhoused population are what's called shared housing, because that's all we have, right? Right. And shared housing is, is is something that you, maybe if you're younger, you're in college, you know, you, you're living in a roommate situation, it's temporary, you can handle. But if you're an older adult, or you're an individual who suffers with mental health barriers and trauma, which most homeless people do, they have some form of trauma or PTSD, they're not going to be able to share a bedroom with a stranger. That is actually a trigger that re-traumatizes them. And it is very, you know, temporary. I mean, we do have shared housing programs, by the way, which are great and they're successful, but they work for a certain type of individuals who are okay sharing a room. It's not for everyone. So I think the main barrier is just having vacant units that we can house folks in that are individualized and they can have a bedroom of their own with a door that shuts with privacy. Of course, privacy is really important as a human being. I think we all really maybe take it for granted even. We don't think about that a lot. Absolutely. And especially if you have, you know, mental health issues, that's definitely something that you need. Yeah. And would you mind touching on the history of homelessness and how you think we've gotten here today? Yes. So I would say in the U.S., I call these the three big giant feeder machines that feed people into homelessness. And one is our criminal justice system. The second one is our mental health system. And the third one is our foster youth system, the way, you know, we handle foster and family services. 
on the county level or just nationwide. And there are, of course, other systems historically that have fed people into the homelessness system, including, of course, like domestic violence and all kinds of other issues. But the three main ones are justice, mental health, and the foster youth system. And if you look back at the history of how those systems were created, you have a very good understanding of why it is that people end up on the street. Our mental health system is basically lacking. It doesn't even really exist. We've never had a mental health system. We had back in the days over 100 years ago, just giant institutions where we would throw people kind of like prisons and chain them up, strip them down naked, put them in bathtubs with ice and electrocute them, hoping they'll get better. It's that was scary. This, <laughs> it was really scary. And I think, you know, what happened is in the 60s, in 1963, President Kennedy was really shocked and appalled by this because of something his sister underwent. She underwent, you know, a lobotomy where they removed part of her brain and disabled her for mental illness. And so he passed the Community Mental Health Act. It was supposed to be a good thing. It said, you know what, these giant institutions that are like prisons, they're inhumane, they're unethical. Let's break them down, dismantle them, and instead let's create very small little community-based centers where you will have roughly 15, 16 people in each one, close to family, community, parks, everything. That way we can treat them more holistically and everyone will have a caseworker, you know, just imagining the best way you can handle. That was his dream, but he he was shot and murdered like three weeks after he passed this act. So that never came to fruition. So to this day, we don't have those community centers he envisioned, but we also don't have those giant institutions, mental health institutions. So what happened is people who had mental illnesses all just ended up on the street. So now they're either on the street or they're in jails. Actually, over 60% of our jail population today is severely mentally ill and in need of medication. They're not supposed to be in jail. So they're either in a jail or they're in the street. So that's the history of how we got here today with the Mental Health Act. Let's say the county wants to build a center to house our mentally ill folks. We cannot build anything more than 16 beds because that law is still in effect. So it actually hinders us at this point. Now we wouldn't have inhumane treatment of people at mental health facilities, but because of that law and because of what happened in the past, we can't even have more than 16 beds. Exactly. It would be illegal to have more than 16 beds. How do you solve homelessness 16 people at a time when you have close to 100,000 homeless people on your streets? So that's just mental health history, right? And there's other stuff that happened in the 80s with Reagan. So I can go into that later. But then you move into the justice reform system with what happened in the 80s and 90s, again, with mass incarceration under Reagan and Clinton was what basically, you know, rounding up hundreds of thousands of young men of color and just taking them to prison for decades at a time for really, really petty things like just use of marijuana or petty theft. So what we're seeing now are those young boys that were incarcerated or young men and women of color back in the 90s are now being released and they're in their 40s and 50s and they're on the street because they have nowhere to go after being incarcerated so many years. Yeah. So a lot of the older adults you see on the street today, 64% of our homeless population today has a record or justice involvement. 
So that is the biggest feeder machine into homelessness. Wow. I would say if we solved our criminal justice system and our mental health system, you would see homelessness almost be eradicated off our streets. I mean, it would drastically be reduced right. because the majority of people on the street are suffering either from mental illness or they have you know, a record, which means they can't get an apartment, they can't lease anything, they can't get a job. And incarceration doesn't rehabilitate people. It almost creates a different mentality of life for them. So then when they come back into society, you really have to be reintroduced to society and we're not doing that either. I mean, not just that being incarcerated. I mean, there are studies on this actually makes your mental health worse. So it creates mental illness. The trauma and stress of being incarcerated creates and triggers mental illness and traumatizes a person. So by the time they're released, they now have a whole new set of mental health issues that are very difficult to treat. Yeah. Could you touch a little bit on the foster care system? You said that was the third feeder machine of of homelessness, and I don't doubt it. That's mainly for youth. So the majority of our unhoused youth are tend to be either children who were in foster care and aged out, and after 18, they ended up on the street, have nowhere to go, they don't have family they can stay with, right? They're not ready for the world, or they are runaways because 60% of unhoused youth have experience with violence, human trafficking, sex trafficking, and a lot of it was experienced, you know, while they were in foster care. So that kind of trauma then leads to crime. Well, you know, they're having to survive on the street now that they're 18. Theft, of course, as a result of having to survive on the street, which then leads to incarceration, which then leads back to like a permanent state of homelessness and living on the street. Wow. So it's just this cycle of jails to homelessness back to jail again. And, and it's created by a system that it just doesn't work. So getting into the idea of housing first, which I know doesn't mean housing alone. It includes supportive services. But in addition to the stability that housing provides for people experiencing homelessness, can you share your thoughts on the idea of the housing first model? I think that in order for housing first to work, you first need to have a housing stock, right? <laughs> um, you can't have housing first if you don't have housing. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work. But today in Los Angeles County, we are short 509,000 housing units. So half a million units. Wow. <laughs> I did not know the number was that high. Yes. So LA County alone is short 509,000 units in order to meet the need and come to a neutral. We're negative 509,000 units. California is negative like 1.3 million units. So it's insane. I guess clarification, what does that number mean? So we're short 509,000 houses. So almost we're, we're short half a million houses or housing units. Multiple families are sharing one home. Is that counting like them needing a house or is that like one bedroom housing units? Like what kind of housing units are we looking at? So it's what's called a RENA. It's R-H-N-A. If you Google there's a RENA is every eight years, basically the state of California releases numbers on each city in the state and how many units they need to build in order to meet the demand because population grows over time. And so every city is responsible for building a certain amount of units each year in order to stay at neutral and prevent homelessness. 
So these are units, they could be one bedroom, it could be two bedroom, they're just units that are meant to basically keep us out of neutral, and so, so that we're not falling into the negative. So we're in the negative now, which means that not only do we have almost 100,000 people unhoused on the street any given night, but we also have a certain amount of folks who are extremely low income that are on the brink of falling into homelessness, meaning one incident away from ending up on the street. And how long has California been in the negative or even L.A. County? H- have we been neutral any time recently? No, no, we've been in the negative. I mean, that's a really good question. Actually, no one has ever asked me that. You're the first person. <laughs> but we kind of stopped building housing in the 90s. Wow. So, you know, like 70s and 80s, we had a surplus. We had so much housing. Housing was so cheap. You didn't like your apartment. <laughs> you just get up and move to it another one with the same price. It didn't matter. You didn't like your landlord, you just moved. But, you know, in the 80s, President Reagan cut a lot of funding that the federal government gave us every year in order to build affordable housing. He did this under Reaganomics. He was basically saying, we need small government, not big government. So let's save wealthier people more money so that they can invest in businesses rather than investing in housing for the poor. This was an idea that was widely accepted in the 80s. But back then we had a housing surplus, everything was great. So nobody really thought about what this would mean 30 years from now. So the federal government cut spending on affordable housing. And in the 90s, we were building every year, building, and then we just kind of stopped. It stayed there. We stopped building. And so fast forward to 2007, we had the Great Recession. And so what happened during the Great Recession was that the housing bubble burst and these homeowners lost their homes. But these homeowners were people who had an education, they had skills, they had good jobs, and they were well off compared to renters in the inner city. But now these folks lost their houses and they moved to the cities and started renting apartments. So overnight, we saw our vacancy rate go down. Today, LA County's vacancy rate is 3.7%, which is the lowest in the country. Basically means we don't have any vacant apartment units. If you want to move somewhere, you can't. I I totally understand that. I'm looking for housing right now. (laughs) I rent a room. The family I live with is expanding their family. They want to have a kid. So I have to uh, find another room because I can't afford even like a solo apartment unless I want to pay more than 50% of my income. And I try really hard not to do that. So renting a small room or something like that is what I look for. And even just in general looking is like, wow, there's nothing available. So it's crazy. But that's not normal. And I know like for your generation, that seems normal because that's what you're used to. But when I was in college in 2007, before the recession, if I went on apartments.com, there were thousands of listings in my price range. I could rent a one bedroom for $800, $900 a month. In my dreams. I know. (laughs) In in all of our dreams now. But now I go to apartments.com. By the way, I do this all the time. I don't know why, just to see our what's vacant, yeah. what's out there. And you will see maybe a handful, 10 or 12 vacant units, kind of in your price range, but still in the 2000s for a one bedroom. This happened because of the Great Recession, because these families moved into the cities and they became renters, but they are competing with renters who are people of color, who have low income, minimum wage jobs. They're not as skilled. They might not have a college degree or high paying jobs. And so these families who have more money and better jobs are now competing for the same units. And what happens in economics is that, you know, competition and demand drive up the price of the good. Right. So who wins here is always the landlords because we overnight you saw like doubling of rents almost because you have like, you know, an extra hundred thousand people suddenly looking for an apartment in Los Angeles city and renting them like this and they have more money. So they're competing with each other to one can pay more than the other and the landlord keeps raising the price. 
And so that's where we are today. We're at a 3.7 vacancy rate. And since the recession, you see a lot, a lot of renters ending up on the street because of this sort of exodus from the suburbs by families into the cities. Wow. How is L.A. preparing to handle providing supportive housing to a homeless population of over 40,000 people, from my knowledge? But you you said over 100,000 people are unhoused at this moment. So there's two different numbers. So there's the number that we get annually from the homeless count. So the last homeless count was done in 2020, which came up with 67,000 unhoused people on the streets any given night. Because of COVID, we skipped doing the count in 2021. So we have to go by the 2020 numbers, which are 67,000. For extra clarification, Lily is referring to L.A. County, which had over 60,000 in 2020's homeless count. The number I had mentioned that was over 40,000 was also the 2020 homeless count, but for the city of Los Angeles. The number that I'm saying, which is closer to 100,000, that comes from what's called our HMIS. It's our Homelessness Data Center that's housed at LASA, the Homeless Authority. And that is where we keep all of our data on homelessness, meaning who came in and touched our homeless system, who fell into homelessness yesterday, who contacted GR to get welfare, who entered a shelter system. That's where all the data is kept. And in that data shows that roughly 100,000 people touch our homeless system every year. Wow. Okay. Now I understand. So maybe they're not homeless permanently. Maybe they're not living on the streets Mm -hmm. for multiple years, but people are going through the system or using it. They might self-resolve. They might not be seen on the night we're counting. They might be somewhere where they're not visible, maybe in a train or a bus, and we don't see them. We don't count them because the annual count is just a snapshot. It's what we see visually. So how is LA preparing to handle the supportive housing process, though, to house the extreme amount of population that is homeless that we have? Okay, so that's a good question. And a lot of folks look at the county for solving homelessness, but you have to understand that you can't solve the homeless crisis if you don't solve the housing crisis first, because you literally cannot. So the county is responsible for services. It's responsible for welfare, DPSS, DCFS, children's services, food stamps, mental health, health. Uh, So you don't necessarily handle the housing portion. No. So it's the cities have jurisdiction over zoning and building. Okay. And there are 88 cities in the county of Los Angeles. Those 88 cities are responsible for building the units that they're required to build by the state in order to meet the demand. And every year we fall short. Every city is behind on the units they're supposed to build every year. In fact, we're so behind. I would say we're behind at least 15 years now. Wow. (laughs) That's so uh... to catch up would be be impossible. But the county of Los Angeles is only responsible for building in what's called unincorporated land. Those are pieces, they're like little chunks of land that are not part of a city. So for example, yeah, so I live in Ladera Heights. It's unincorporated county. It doesn't belong to any city, not incorporated in any city. But the county of Los Angeles right now has 3,900 units for unhoused people, permanent supportive units in the pipeline that we're building just in unincorporated areas. But those are the only areas we have jurisdiction over to build. We can't build in a city. Gotcha. Okay. And what policies, propositions, or measures so far have had a very positive impact on helping the homeless population come off the streets? That's a really good question, um, Crystal. And I, I don't think anyone has really asked me that either in the past. There are so many measures and ideas and, you know, that we can, best practices we can look to that help the unhoused. But I'll give you three that I've seen work in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. So 
the first one I would say, let's call it rezoning or upzoning, because like I said, we can't solve homelessness if we don't solve the housing crisis first. In order to solve the housing crisis, we need to change our zoning laws so that we can build more. A lot of these cities that I say are behind and are not building, it's because their zoning laws are so strict, they don't allow them to build anywhere, pretty much nowhere. And so in 2018, for example, Minneapolis changed its zoning laws because 70% of their land was zoned for single family homes, just like ours is in LA. A lot of these zoning laws, you know, have a history of redlining and kind of a racist history. So they're zoned this way specifically for a reason. And it's something that we don't think about today, but they, they were zoned this way for a reason, you know, to keep certain people out. So they were zoned for single family homes, mostly for middle-class white people. And so Minneapolis in 2018 voted to, to basically eradicate single family zoning. And they have decided to upzone and build affordable housing more in these zones where you normally couldn't build because they were single family homes. And since 2018, they've seen a reduction in homelessness every year. Wow. So we know changing zoning and building Will works, help. but it's kind of common sense. Of course, it's going to work. Like right. you, have homes you can now. build more apartments, then that houses <laughs> a lot more people per square foot. Yeah, obviously. So obviously makes sense. And the second one is the way we have addressed veteran homelessness. So there was a time in the United States back in a day when the majority of homeless people were actually older white male veterans. They would come back from war, start drinking, and just end up on a street, no work. And this was like a typical, they were called hobos or bums, you know, but today we have actually kind of turned that around and veterans are our smallest unhoused population. So every year since Obama went into office, I believe since 2007, we have reduced veteran homelessness across the country and in Los Angeles. There are entire states right now that have zero veteran homelessness. They've literally gone down to zero. That's how great we've been doing. And when you look at the veteran programs to see like, hey, if this is a good practice and it works because these veterans are getting housed and staying housed, they're not, they're not returning to homelessness. What are we doing right here? We're doing something right. And it's the combination of housing with mental health services. That combination is so powerful because what's happening is that we're actually treating veterans as people who have experienced severe trauma in war and they have severe PTSD. And so we're combining their housing with trauma therapy. And a lot of these veterans who are men, you know, might have a hard time going to like a female therapist and like laying on a couch and telling them all their problems. So what they have are therapy sessions with, with what's called peer support. So they have other peers who are also veterans who have experienced trauma, giving each other peer support. So there's all kinds of trauma therapy models that have been combined with veteran housing. But we see that when you combine trauma therapy with housing, it actually works. These veterans get housed and stay housed. They get better over time. They start working. And we see really, really great results. So that's something we should definitely be replicating for all our populations, not just veterans, but right. domestic violence, right. right? Incarcerated folks. And then the third one is what's called guaranteed basic income. It's something new that everyone's talking about, but it's really not a new idea. Um, this is where the government, it just subsidizes your rent. If you're low income, you're an older adult, you have no way of growing your income. The government just basically gives you free money, just a check, maybe $600 a month or a thousand a month to help you with rent, groceries, everything else. 
and that's not considered income. So it won't affect your other benefits. If you're getting welfare, they won't take it away if you're getting, if you combine it. So my boss, Supervisor Holly Mitchell, um, recently passed a motion to introduce a guaranteed basic income pilot in Los Angeles County. So we'll be giving away $1,000 a month to 1,000 low-income families in South LA in our district for the next three years. And we're going to do a control study and see the effects of that three years from now in preventing homelessness. By the way, this has been done in Europe, throughout the country. We know it works. It actually the best indicator of preventing homelessness. There was a new tax proposed on L.A. property sales over $5 million, the United to House L.A. initiative. Do you believe that would be effective in aiding the homeless community? I don't really believe that our problem, our issue with solving homelessness is one of a lack of money. Uh, we are the richest county in the country. Our, you know, We have a budget of $39 billion a year. California is the richest state in the world with $286 billion a year budget. We're rich. We have plenty of money. Money is not our issue here. Our issue is our inability to build units to house people. Our issue is NIMBYism, you know, our, our zoning laws and the voters who refuse to let us change those laws and refuse to let us build in their backyards. Right. And, you know, if we had the ability to build, we have the money to build for sure. And you're speaking of NIMBYism, which is uh, not in my backyard. And I've uh, spoken to a few other people about this as well. What do you think is the best way to combat that as a community? It's really hard to do. That's something I'm trying to figure out as well in my lifetime and in my career is how do I speak with NIMBYs who are people that say not in my backyard. These are people who want a solution to homelessness, but not if that solution is going to be anywhere on their street or near their homes. The issue is that the people that are NIMBYs, they imagine in their minds that there is this land somewhere kind of further away that is totally vacant where we can just take all the unhoused people and place them there and house them there because I can tell that's what they're imagining in their minds and they want us to do that what they're not understanding is that 75% of LA County land is single family homes it's zoned for single family homes and that 25% of the land where all the renters and businesses and industrial zones are that's already so jam-packed, there's not a space to drop a needle in. The only place where we can really start building is in the rest of the land, which is zoned for single-family homes. And I think that's what single-family homeowners don't understand, is that there is no other land. The county of Los Angeles and the city, we're constantly going through a roster of vacant lands that we might own, vacant lots. We literally, I drive and look at those lots, take photos and say, can we build something here? Right. They are very few and far in between. And when we do find one that might work, like I thought I recently did, it ends up being near a school or near a residential area where the folks say, no, you're not doing a homeless shelter there. You're not, you know, you're not bringing anything there. So even those few lots that we do own are really hard. I think going back to your question about how do you combat NIMBYism, I think the only way is education and really showing people who are saying no to these solutions that there is no other alternative. If there was another alternative, we would do it. If, if there was an option to take 25,000 unhoused people to the desert and build a resort for them, which is what they always say you should do, that is not an option. We can't do, we, you know, we can't send everybody to Palm Springs or to Palmdale or wherever it is. Like they are here 
this is where we need to house them. Unfortunately, we need to rezone in order to do that. Right. And how do politics play a part in the solutions for the housing issue, which ends up leading to the homeless population? You know, it's kind of a difficult balance. There's an internal conflict with being an elected official in a democratic institution, because on the one hand, you're here to represent your constituents. You have to do what they say. You have to vote the way they want you to vote, or you're voted out of office and you lose your job. On the other hand, you have subject matter experts advising you, right? You've got scientists on your team. You've got homeless experts, housing experts, and they're telling you what needs to be done to solve the problem. And so elected officials know what the solutions are to homelessness and the housing crisis, but they can't implement them because they have to follow the voice of the many, which is their voters. And the voice of the many are saying, no, you can't do this. So every year you have legislation, you have bills and motions that are introduced by senators, by council members to change zoning, to upzone, to build more units, right? And every year they get shot down. There's like a huge outcry from their voters that say, we will vote you out of office. Every day I receive emails and letters saying, we will vote your boss out of office if she even thinks about Etc. Changing et cetera. right. Every day I receive those threats. We're used to it. Wow. <laughs> not every week. It's every day. So That's the threat to our jobs, the threat to us not have, being in office, is very real. And so what our bosses, what our elected officials, a lot of times have to do is kind of principle. I mean, they want to do the right thing, but if they do, they'll the bill will get killed and they'll be out of office, and so, so to, we'll be out of a job. You have to find some sort of balance to getting towards what you want, but maybe not so drastically that people automatically shut it down. Exactly. And that's what all elected officials, governors, senators, that's what they're all trying to figure out. That's why they're always saying, how do we tweak the language? What words do we use to get people to say yes? Right. Because we know what the <laughs> solutions are. We just need people to say yes to them. <laughs> right. And yeah. of course, uh, nimbyism all comes from the solution that we know will work. They may not want that one, which it makes it even harder for the elected officials and yourself. So how is it possible for L.A. to keep up with the homeless population that's growing at such an alarmingly fast rate? So that basically would have to be that every single city in Los Angeles County starts building the numbers that they're required every eight years. So we're in the sixth cycle now of the RENA numbers that are getting published to say each city needs to build this many. Every city, right, like city of Santa Monica is behind 8,000, city of Burbank is behind this many thousand. And so you look at those numbers and every city has to build that many in order for us to stem this tide and actually bring homelessness to what we call functional zero. So solving homelessness, our goal is to bring homelessness to functional zero, which means that you can never have a true zero because even if you housed everybody that's on the street today, there's someone tonight who's like getting into a fight or running away from home and will end up in the street tomorrow. So you can never have a true zero But if you create a system where we can house the amount of folks who fall into homelessness as they fall, we will always be at a functional zero. So if we have 10 people falling into homelessness today and we have 10 beds, we will be at functional zero. But what's happening today is each day the county of Los Angeles houses 207 people. But every day we have 227 fall into homelessness. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you're still even in that way in the negative. That's why we're in a negative. That's why you visibly see people on the street is because our system doesn't have the capacity to handle the inflow 
Right. The inflow is so drastic. I, you know, I, last year we housed roughly 23, 24,000 people, but about 54,000 fell into homelessness last year. So we don't have beds for the rest. Right. So where do they go? They end up on the street. It's wild that the numbers are so drastic like that. From your knowledge and work, do you believe the continued issue of homelessness in Southern California is suffering from a lack of funding, lack of proper solutions, too much red tape, or something else entirely? Definitely not lack of funding. We are the richest county in the world, in the nation. We definitely have money, and we have a lot of political will. I don't know a single elected official that does not want to solve homelessness. Every elected official is on the same page at this point about what's needed in order to solve homelessness. We have the political will. We have the money. So I'll give you an example of red tape. Red tape being something that blocks us from trying to complete a project, right? Let's say we are trying to develop a 100-unit project in the city of Los Angeles. What are two things that will block us normally? Number one is CEQA, which is the environmental act that will hold up years and years before they approve the project. So the project has to go through CEQA in order to get approval for us to build it there. CEQA will not only hold it up for a year or two so that the project dies because no developer can handle waiting two years to build. They lose a ton of money every day as they're waiting. But if you don't go through the CEQA process, they'll sue you and you'll get held up in court for years and years, which again kills the project. Another thing will be our very strict guidelines on like fire codes and safety codes. So I've seen projects get held up for years. When I worked at the city of Los Angeles, we were just trying to build a 40 bed shelter with Mayor Garcetti, a bridge home project. And these are temporary 40 bed projects that would take a year and a half, two years to build because of those fire codes, because the fire department would come in and check and say, we don't like this smoke detector or this handle here. And so another six months of renovations just to get that approval from the fire department and from CEQA and the NIMBYs around. So that's the red tape. In the whole system of just in general, it happening, it may not be specifically your departments, but the whole issue of being able to build a house or build housing units seems like it could get caught up with red tape. But it all goes back to who, who designed those systems to be in place and to be so rigid that we can't build things. And it's the people that don't want those units built there. It always goes back to NIMBYism. What projects are you and or SD2 currently working on to provide more aid to the homeless? Well, I mean, the county of Los Angeles is doing a lot. We contract with over 170 providers, homeless providers every year. We have over 433 contracts with institutions and nonprofits that provide assistance to unhoused people. But that includes everything. I mean, that Department of Mental Health touches unhoused people, right? Um, Public Defender's Office. So the county of Los Angeles is doing a lot. You know, in 2017, we passed the Measure H, which is a sales tax, quarter cent sales tax uh, for the unhoused population. So when we go shopping, everything, you know, we spend money on a quarter cent of that goes into roughly 355 million a year in services for the unhoused. Last year alone, the county spent $1 billion on homelessness. Wow. And so that billion is broken down to a lot of, you know, we have project developments, we have capital developments, we have services. A lot of money is channeled through LASA, the Los Angeles Homeless Authority, to our homeless providers. A lot of them come in the form of housing vouchers, Section 8 vouchers, workforce development. There's a lot. So there's 52 strategies in the Measure H buckets that are broken down to how much money goes into each one. And they're divvied up based on the different areas where service is needed. But at the end of the day, if we don't have the units, 
for people to go into their services they're receiving while on the street, which doesn't end homelessness, right? Right. It just might help, but it doesn't help end it. Yeah. If you're sick and we're giving you medicine you're, while you're taking it, while you're sleeping on the street, you're not going to get better. Right. That's, that's not the solution. The solution is, of course, housing, right? Right. And if you don't have stability, how can you treat mental health issues or things like that? You need security, safety, you know, those basic fundamental needs first and foremost, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Where do you see the future of homelessness in Southern California? Well, unfortunately, it is going to get worse before it gets better. We do have projections. So homelessness is going to rise pretty much every year. We have some shocking numbers and shocking factors which project that the majority of the unhoused population by 2030 are going to be older adults, older adults that are homeless for the first time. So more than 50% of the unhoused population will be people over the age of 55 and 60 years old. Grandmas and grandpas are going to be our main unhoused. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Oh my gosh, but that makes sense because of lack of social security and lack of that matching up to where rent is going to be. Social security has always been known to possibly run out. And even to begin with, it doesn't give enough money to those low income older adults who wanted to rely on that, you know, 20 years ago. It will be now 20 years from now. That is really scary. Do you have like actual numbers, like the amount of homeless that we might be seeing in 2030? No, I I don't think we have those projected. We know who will be unhoused by those, but we don't have the exact numbers of what we project, but it will definitely be more than double what we have today. That's for sure. Um, I mean, unless we start doing some really intensive housing programs like Project Bloomkey, where we did it overnight during COVID, and we house over 6,000 older adults a matter of months because of COVID, we don't know what project like that will come online. So we can't project the exact numbers by 2030. But you're exactly right. Older adults are one population where they're on a fixed income. Their income is never going to grow, right? So if they're at 800 a month with Section 8, and also we don't have any Section 8 units available, that's not matching up with market rate. So I'll give you an idea of how homelessness rises with rent. So it's estimated that homelessness rises basically by a percentage point every time rent is more than 22% of your median income, the area median income. So if you are spending more than 22% of your income on rent, we start to see homelessness rise. It is like the correlation. It goes up together. Today in LA County, we are at 47%. People are spending roughly on average 40% of their income on rent. The numbers you would project is exactly what you're seeing on the street. I just did a calculation for myself what 22% of my income would be. And I'm definitely paying more than that now and potentially going to pay more than that in a month or two. Of course you are. (laughs) You're probably paying more than half your income to rent. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's crazy. (laughs) My final question for you, Lily, how has working with the homeless changed your personal perspective on life? Uh, well, you know, it's it's definitely opened my eyes to just how much trauma affects homelessness. And, and I know I just spent all this time talking about like economics and housing and the lack of housing. But there's something like there's also this underlying current of trauma that that's the common denominator in every unhoused person. And it's not, you know, a lot of people fall into homelessness, that self-resolve. But the ones that stay unhoused, the ones that are persistently homeless or what we call chronically homeless. There's definitely a common theme there. The folks that 
don't seem to be able to get housed and stay housed, there is always a very deep sort of unprocessed, untreated trauma that they've experienced, whether they're a veteran or they've experienced mass incarceration or family death or they were abused as children, they're victims of human trafficking, domestic violence, you name it. There's always trauma that has and there's accumulated trauma. There's like two kinds of PTSD in psychology. There's PTSD, you experience post-traumatic stress disorder from a very brief traumatic event, like a bomb going off or an accident or war. And then there's PTSD that accumulates over years and years of traumatic events happening that go untreated over time. And so what we see in our unhoused population that stay unhoused is that second type of PTSD, where it's like a lifetime of traumatic events happened to them that they've never sought treatment for or got treated for. And so so a lot of our unhoused population, like the 100,000 I told you about that are in our data, those are people that cycle in and out of homelessness roughly three to four times. So each one has been housed at least three times by one of our programs and has fallen back into homelessness and lost that house wow. or lost wow. the job we hooked them up with. We hooked them up with housing, a key to an apartment, with a job, and then we see them a year later back out on the street. It's because that trauma that has been untreated is still there and they're triggered by something that might happen at work or with a roommate or with a landlord. And that has like a jolting effect where they're sort of like triggered and they end up losing the job, getting into a fight and they're back exactly where they started from. And what happens to someone who's been traumatized so much throughout their lifetime is they already have a mistrust in authority and government. So when we give them these programs and they fail, they not only lose complete trust in us and their government in these institutions and programs, but they also start to feel like they're the problem because now the government's come to help them and given them free housing and they ended up losing that too. So it must be them that's the problem. And so setting people up to fail just means traumatizing them even more. So how has all of this experience for you affected you in your life? Well, you know, it, it can be very draining and depressing working with people that I feel like I can't help because I'm spending at least two to three hours a day on the phone with unhoused constituents who are crying, who are asking me for help. Yesterday it was raining. There was an older woman in a wheelchair. I couldn't get her into a shelter. And I tried and I tried. There were no beds available. She stayed out in the street in the rain in her wheelchair. And that's something I have to go to bed thinking about. It's hard to remove myself from those experiences and say, okay, I'm going to turn it off now and go to bed because it's really hard to turn something like that off. Yeah. I can see why we lose so many uh, homeless caseworkers. We have such a high turnaround. Like we get, we hire caseworkers and within a year or two, 24 months, they quit. We've had so many caseworkers quit during COVID that we're really short on staff right now throughout the county. You know, it's also traumatizing for us too, to want to help, but not be able to help people. Right. Because there's nowhere for us to place them. And so- I've had to kind of, for myself, learn like coping skills and coping mechanisms. And I also have to undergo therapy. And I also have to undergo like classes that teach me how to serve this population, but still, you know, not let it affect me so much that I'm going to quit. Thank you so much, Lily, for taking the time to do this. Hopefully we are able to make a dent, at least in the homeless community and help get housing built faster somehow. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Definitely. It's evident that lack of housing is the primary issue when it comes to homelessness in Los Angeles. 
But there's a lot of other factors. RHNA or RENA, that's the list that identifies how many housing units each city or county needs to build in order to match the current population. LA County is actually behind by 500,000 housing units, half a million. And that's going to be difficult to get out of. Chronic homelessness stems from years of trauma. Mental health needs to be a focus in order to help those that are having difficulties getting off the streets and staying in housing. Lily gave a great example with veterans here in the United States. In previous years, most people experiencing homelessness were veterans. That's all changed based on supportive housing, combining housing with mental health services. It's proven to be beneficial. And although politicians and government offices and the communities seem to be working together pretty seamlessly, red tape can be an issue. Things like CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, has the ability to hold up a housing project for years, or even specific safety standards like the location of a fire detector. These are just a few of the issues and solutions surrounding the homeless crisis here in Los Angeles. As Lily Sofiani said, it's projected that by 2030, a majority of people experiencing homelessness will be older adults. But we have to stay hopeful that other programs like Project Room Key will come into effect. And maybe we can minimize the amount of people experiencing homelessness here in Southern California. I'm Crystal Zoller, and thank you for listening to Project Halo.